Hey everybody, welcome to Soap Notes. Um, like we are very pleased and honored to have Dr. Vince Moore. He's a professor of health services at Brown University. Um, Vince is a nationally recognized expert and researcher in post-acute care, the senior care overall, but also the nursing home industry. Um, and last but not least, um, we are so honored because Vince has been chairman of our scientific advisory board here at Nava Health um, since its inception. Um, welcome, Vince. We are really pleased to have you. I'm delighted to be here with you, Jay. It's great. Yeah. Where, where are you uh, zooming in from? So I'm actually zooming in uh, from <laughs> my bedroom. Uh, uh, the Wi-Fi is better in this room than my office. But, but I've been at home since last March. Um, I, I did teach in the fall, and uh, mm -hmm. I insisted on teaching to my students if, I, if they, any of them wanted to come into class. Yeah. For about six or eight weeks, four students came into class, and the rest were online. You know, it, it's not much fun. People can really relate to your story because we've all been living through this, you know, in the pandemic. Uh, so... You know, just to start, uh, Vince, um, love to hear a little bit about your background professionally. And if you could share a few stories about early Nava Health, that would be great too. Okay, so um, so I'm a, a, an unusual kind of employee in this day and age. I've been at Brown since 1980. So I've been at Brown since most of my graduate students, postdocs, or um, junior faculty even, uh, have been alive. So, <laughs> and I, of course, remind them of that on a regular basis. Right, right. Um, so I came to Brown actually in 1980 to do uh, the National Hospice Study. So okay. hospice at the time was not a Medicare benefit. And uh, there was a big study, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and what at the time was uh, CMS used to be called the Healthcare Financing Administration. And so I was in, I, I, I ran that entire study. And that ultimately led to the creation of the Medicare um, benefit, the hospice benefit under yeah. hospice. And then I, I continue to focus on aging, long-term care, and um, big data ever since in doing research of various sorts. Um, and so, you know, I've been doing that. I've uh, yeah. my, my job, I, for a while, I was the chairman of the department. We were part of the medical school. Um, and I ran the center for a while. Uh, now I'm very happy. I have no administrative job, <laughs> administrative responsibilities. I How just do, do research, I, you know, with my team. And uh, as I tell the dean, my job is revenue, and your job is everything else. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, You're in a good position, then. Right. I'm in a good position. It's the best. It's a great job. It's really fun. It's wonderful, and it changes all the time. So it's uh, it's very exciting. You know, um, Vince, that history um, with HICFA, I do yeah. remember HICFA being before CMS. Right. It's great to have that history. And I think you probably know most of the history of Medicare Advantage as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've been around for a long time. <laughs> so actually, awesome. that gets that gets to um, to the beginning of Nava Health. So yeah. um, one, the Nava Health began. Uh, with one of my former students, um, 
who is who was, was an economics student. He took one of my courses. He enjoyed it a great deal. I always had a great time having undergraduates in economics sort of uh, uh, disabuse the uh, the liberal uh, folks who are all public health people uh, right, taking right. The, the courses. And it was nice to have a good discussion in there. And anyway, so um, uh, he became a, um, a, a partner, a principal in Welsh Carson, which is a large mm -hmm. private equity firm. And um, Tom Scully, who used to be one of the administrators of HICFA, yeah. uh, was also part, uh, is a principal, was a principal then of, uh, of uh, Welsh Carson as well. And um, they had, because I talked to my uh, colleague, my, my, yeah. my uh, student about post-acute care, and Scully knew that knew post-acute care from the time when he was the administrator. Yep. And they said, well, there's got to be something to do in this in this area, in this space. And so the two of us, my student and I, and then ultimately Scully and I, uh, mm -hmm. we had lots of conversations about what's the right way, what's the right avenue, et cetera. And um, then Welsh Carson decided to make a big play and yeah. to uh, basically create a firm to do this kind of work. But they wanted to do it leveraging on... Um, an existing company. So they went out and bought a company called Senior Metrics, which is part of the, the technology and the algorithm that's underlying some of the uh, risk stratification work that's been done. And they, um, they brought that under the umbrella and then began adding to it and adding customers and so yeah. on and so forth and putting a whole team around that. And because um, my uh, student had been part of uh, starting another company, they'd also had a scientific advisory board. I think this was more of a, of a life sciences company. Uh, he thought, hey, we should have a scientific advisory board. So he said, Vince, why don't you, uh, you know, head it up? And I was kind of interested. I'd never yeah. been in that kind of a startup completely from scratch with real money. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was an interesting experience altogether. I've learned a huge amount. And hopefully I've been able to contribute something. Oh, you've been, they've been a fabulous chairman of the scientific advisory board. And, uh, and I, I love that um, early um, history of, it took like you and others, smart people to come up with the idea that, hey, we can do this better. We can help that senior care journey. Um, and um, basically, create value from this company. So that's a, that's a really great story for um, kicking us off. Well, I'm gonna move to some of our questions, uh, Vince. Um, sure. And the first one really has to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, it's been a little over a year that it hit. And as you well know, nursing homes and seniors in nursing homes were impacted disproportionately. Um, looking back now in a after a year, tell us a little bit about what you think we could have done differently or better. Huh, interesting. So just, you know, for the audience, um, I, I've been specializing for years in bringing data sets together of various sorts, uh, merging, matching, all related to uh, post-acute care, long-term care. And um, 
when the first cases of uh, COVID began in a nursing home in Washington state where the first deaths began to really occur. There were some other, a few other deaths, but all of a sudden there were seven, eight people. It was an epidemic and it was a disaster in a particular nursing home. Um, so the first thing we did was um, reach out and try to get data because um, one of the things that was clear that was going on is that there were just lots and lots of anecdotes and people were using a narrative that yeah. was not terribly helpful uh, in understanding what to do next. And um, so we needed to have data. And then, because the narrative that was being projected um, was that basically these were bad, low quality nursing homes, which had staff who didn't care and who were sloppy. And um, that's why the epidemic happened. That's mm -hmm. why there were outbreaks. Yeah. Um, and that story began to uh, uh, sort of have a life of its own. And when we finally got our hands on real-time data, we, we worked with a, a large nursing home company called Genesis. And uh, we basically set up a system so that they downloaded their entire electronic medical record to us every night. Mm -hmm. We spent literally days and nights and weekends uh, formulating the data so that we could begin to ask some questions because yeah. we were committed to help the company and the industry understand what was causing this and mm -hmm. what actions that they could take to make it better. Um, and what became clear very quickly is that the nursing homes that were being hit with outbreaks were located in counties where the prevalence of the, the of the vac uh, of the uh, uh, virus was yeah. much higher, mm -hmm. and so it just so happened to exactly correspond. So first in New York, New Jersey, then Massachusetts, Connecticut, it happened. That's where the first big outbreaks. There was an isolated case, as I mentioned, in Washington State, but it really yeah. didn't break out there as a broad broad. Uh, character. No one really understands why. Mm -hmm. um, uh, super spreaders, who knows all of those things exactly why. May have been different variations of the, the variants of the of the back of the virus at the time, yeah. uh, some more or less infective as we've begun to learn. But it was very clear once we began to do the analysis that mm -hmm. there were two really important factors that influenced the um, the spread of the of the virus and the fact that a, a nursing home would have an outbreak. First, where the, the prevalence of the virus in the community in which the nursing home was located. And secondly, the size of the nursing home. Oh. The size of the nursing home was because it's a matter of traffic. Yeah. This is a this is a virus or disease that spreads by people circulating and mm -hmm. people from the outside go into a closed environment with generally speaking, not the greatest air circulation because there are relatively yeah. older buildings, but these people brought stuff in and uh, they didn't even know they had it. Uh, other thing that was really critical to this story is that mm -hmm. for a long time, people thought, oh, you're symptomatic, you're sick. But yeah. half of all of the people who get the virus, including in nursing homes, are completely asymptomatic, which means that People could walk in the door, you can do the little temperature check, and it's useless. Yeah. 
And until all of that was well understood, the narrative about bad nursing homes giving bad care and therefore that's why their patients are dying became very prominent. But without the right narrative, without the right story, you can't, you, you can't come up with the, the right solution. And as, this, as it became more apparent that this was literally a matter of inadequate protective equipment, inadequate preparation, inadequate um, separation, inadequate mm -hmm. mask wearing, all of those preventive kinds of things that people know about, but no one was prepared for this. Hospitals weren't prepared for this. Nursing yeah. homes weren't prepared for this. And so uh, the most difficult thing for society to do yeah. is to be prepared for a low probability event. Yeah, and I'll just say this, that that research and that the ability and how quickly you got that out to, you know, the public uh, knowledge or public health, you know, equation really helped to make changes so that yeah. homes could take the right actions and help seniors be safe, safe in the nursing homes, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, the, 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 the mortality rate, we have a paper coming out actually next week. Yeah. Uh, the mortality rate from April through November declined dramatically so that, you know, the number of people so that there were lots of things that were adjusted. So the mortality mm -hmm. rate dropped, the, the incidence dropped as people became uh, more careful. Now, mind you, no matter how much PPE, no matter how much everything, this yeah. is very intimate work. These people are sick. They need to be lifted out of bed. Yeah. And so you can't social distance when you're caring for these patients. That's right. That's right. I mean, protecting uh, and keeping them safe in the nursing home is, is going to be a continual challenge, right? Exactly. It's, it's exactly. not going to just go away. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts of how, you know, because there are quality measures for nursing homes um, and quality measures that Medicare, um, you know, tracks regularly uh, for the nursing homes. Are those going to change now that we've learned some of this uh, around the pandemic? Or is there going to be, is it going to have to be like more thoughtful around how we're measuring the quality of, of nursing homes? That's a great question. Um, I have to, I, I don't know the answer, um, but I would have to uh, imagine that CMS has been so busy pushing out policy changes and they've done a really great job. I mean, they've been incredibly responsive and trying to put things together. They've worked. I was just talking with uh, one of my colleagues this morning about that. They and CDC have worked at breakneck speed. It's always too late, but that's because we need an answer yesterday, not yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> but they've had tomorrow answers, which is remarkable giving... Yeah given given the fact that it's that it, things are changing so quickly um so i doubt that they've spent much time thinking about their you know how they're they they might change the the yeah. star the star the quality measures, quality measures but yeah. i'm a, i know that they will be thinking about that once things begin to settle down a little bit more and yeah. they may put more emphasis on um, infectious disease issues mm -hmm. and or vaccination rates uh, than they have in the past. Um, yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. 
it it will be interesting to see you know how like i know acute care hospitals um like would mandate you had to have the flu vaccine if you were going to work in an acute care hospital and so that wasn't foreign to them but it's certainly not the um, culture of the nursing homes to mandate any kind of uh, vaccination. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. Um, so what's interesting with respect with respect to vaccination, both the COVID vaccination, but also influenza vaccination, is mm -hmm. that many, many states do not allow um, that requirement. There's no, you know, there's choice in there. Choice, uh, yeah. The hospitals can say, well, if you don't get vaccinated, you need to wear a mask all the time. You need to wear gloves. You need to wear, you know, all that other kind of stuff. Yeah. And my, many staff don't want to do that. So they're willing to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, I, but there are some states that, that allow the mandate of vaccination. It's like yeah. a workers, a, a workers issue. And the same workers. thing was true for, for nursing homes. Yeah. So I would, I'm interested in the recent award of a grant that you had. It's uh, um, the $4.2 million federal grant from the National Institute on Aging to really track this um, vaccination rates and safety for Medicare beneficiaries. I believe it's with CMS, if I'm not mistaken, but could you share a little more about that? Right, so um, again, this was uh, last fall. Um, we already have put together a fairly robust database on nursing homes, mm -hmm. and we're trying to, you know, extract the information on vaccination rates and testing rates from that. And those data from their electronic medical records can readily be matched to Medicare claims so we can track things. But for the broader population, um, Interesting, I was having a conversation with the chief medical officer at CVS, Consumer Value Store, CVS, about some other research that we were, had started to do before pandemic happened. And I was saying, so, you know, we, my junior colleague here really needs your data. And they're right. saying, listen, we have no bandwidth. We're all out here. We have, we're preparing for doing vaccinations of millions of Americans through CVS stores. Mm -hmm. uh, because CVS also owns a company called Omnicare, and Omnicare is a uh, um, a uh, pharmacy benefit group or a pharmacy uh, consultant pharmacy group that actually provides pharmacy pharmaceutical services to people in nursing homes to nursing okay. homes across okay. the country. So there, so that's one of the largest in the country. So they are a soup to nuts kind of healthcare company. Yep. And so you know, so I said, so Troy, would you? be willing to match your pharmacy data for all of your Medicare uh, uh, members to Medicare claims so that we could actually track the administration of the vaccine mm -hmm. because they were doing so much administration of the vaccine. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, let me think about that. So he said, yeah, that's a good idea. So I worked with their data people. We put a proposal together and, um, it was funded uh, as part of a, a study. And we're basically trying to do two things, uh, mm -hmm. three things rather. First, who gets vaccinated and who doesn't. Okay. So I think CVS has uh, 12 or 13 million, 13 million um, Medicare beneficiaries who are their customers. Got so it. we'll have all of their data. 
We'll know whether they were vaccinated or not vaccinated. Those data will be then matched to Medicare mm -hmm. claims. And so we can track who's vaccinated, who's not. Yeah. And we'll look at geography, different factors around that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, what are some of the adverse effects effects of the uh, of the vaccine? Okay. We've been doing that in the nursing home setting, but yeah. you know, looking at 12, 13 million people is a much bigger thing yeah. than looking at a few a few thousand nursing home residents. Right. Um, and then third, what are the long-term consequences and what's the rate of breakthrough? That is, how, how, what proportion of people who are vaccinated will ultimately come down with uh, a COVID diagnosis later and how much later? So those are the three big questions. And um, uh, you know, the newest thing that's happening is uh, Walgreens has just agreed to join us. Oh. And so we're uh, going to be working with Walgreens as well. And they're each going to We'll have all that combined data, which ends up being about 25 million Medicare beneficiaries. Wow, that's that's real. Congratulations. That that really? seems well. First of all, the questions are extremely important to have big data answers to. Um, do you have any theories about you know kind of the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing? Um, there's reports out that staff in the nursing homes um, may be uh, up to you know. 40% may not want to take the vaccine. And we certainly hear of hesitancy and, you know, like African-American populations. Do you have any thesis or theories on that? Yeah, so we're doing a trial right now. Oh, yeah. It was very difficult to do, uh, to get off the ground, but we're just, you know, in the midst of it. We are doing a trial in four nursing home companies, random assignment, experimental controls. And in the experimental homes, we're trying our best to identify uh, sort of informal um, uh, leaders, you know, opinion leaders, okay. uh, obviously the formal people as well. Um, and we're trying to sort of get them to talk to their colleagues, their coworkers, assess their, you know, their attitudes, et cetera. Um, and then we've done a whole bunch of focus groups and other yeah. kinds of things. You know, we've helped uh, provide you know, money for testing in the event that somebody becomes vaccinated and then has symptoms the next day, we could test them so that because we figured that the number of tests would be going up. And yeah. so we're doing all of that. But as part of that process, we're clearly documenting the mm -hmm. level of staff, um, uh, the uptake of the vaccine, yeah. of the vaccination. And this issue of hesitancy is, is complicated. Mm -hmm. So some people now are saying that, um, that hesitancy is because people have access to inadequate information. Mm -hmm. It's not that people are, you know, believe in conspiracy theories. You know, these people who are nurses aides in nursing homes in, uh, yeah. in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Tennessee, they're not anti-vaxxers like, you know, yeah. like upper middle-class people worrying about things that are just, you know, right. frankly yeah. ridiculous. Right. They're they're frankly they don't trust um, they don't trust the bosses all that much. Mm -hmm. They're worried about the what appeared to have been a very political process of the mm -hmm. creating of the vaccines and the, who who hated yeah. whom in that whole process last oh, year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and then there is lots and lots of misinformation in mm -hmm. all sorts of places, and one of the yeah. consequences of having uh, so many different 
diverse sources of information yeah. is that there's no, you know, we don't have a Walter Cronkite anymore that everybody trusts. Yeah. For those yeah. of you who don't know who Walter Trusted Cronkite source. was, look him up. Yeah. Um, the trusted source of information, I think. A it trusted source of information. It's lacking, yeah. Right. And so, certainly that's, so that's that's part of it in the nursing home setting. Uh, some of it is also a little bit of access. That is, if you're a poor aide, we pay people so little, you yeah. need to also work at McDonald's uh, and you're only working the night shift because you get a premium at the night shift in the nursing home. Mm -hmm. You're not going to want to come in at eight yeah. o'clock in the morning for your vaccination mm -hmm. or you have to get the kids off to school. I mean, those things are very real and we yeah. have to take them into consideration. So while people are hesitant because they don't trust the notion of labeling it with hesitancy is sort of like blaming the victim. Yeah. And I think there's a more, a more nuanced way of thinking yeah. about it um, as, I, yeah, it's a, there's a more nuanced way of thinking about it. Yeah. And, it, and it's a, it's a real issue and it's, it's, I, I it's legitimate, you know, yeah. like there are many people who have legitimate concerns and those concerns need to be addressed as you're saying. And I, I'm just, Kenny, hearing you talk, I think your research is going to really help to we hope so. find these categories of, you know, why people may not want the vaccine, and get vaccinated. So I think that's going to be really helpful moving forward. Um, you know, one of the things that was occurring even pre-COVID, Vince, um, there were many challenges that like senior care was facing even before yep. the pandemic. Yep. I mean, there was an epidemic of chronic disease. Um, the demographics were, you know, um, people were living longer. The elderly, I, I have this, um, you know, I was a practicing surgeon for a long time. And there was a time where in the hospital, if you were like 85, you were really, it was unique that you were 85 year old in the hospital getting, you know, but now it's the norm. I mean, we would take um, hundred year olds now. So the, the aging demographic, the chronic disease, and especially I think how we need to deal with um, certain aspects of those chronic diseases like dementia care. Um, this was a challenge even before COVID, but I'm really interested in your uh, perspective on kind of the, that big challenge, but specifically when it comes to attacking Alzheimer's and dementia care. So that's great thing. So we have a, a number of large grants focusing on mm -hmm. uh, trying to actually stimulate uh, new pilot programs that are embedded in healthcare systems, okay. trying to address the challenges that healthcare systems have in meeting the needs of persons living with dementia and their care partners. Mm -hmm. So uh, this, you know, in some sense, the different parts of the healthcare system have a different um, view of yeah. people with dementia. Mm -hmm. So in the doctor's office, you know, primary care doctor, now let's say they have an adult, an adult population. They'll have maybe, you know, if they have a practice of three, 4,000 patients, um, they'll have maybe 15, 20 people who they'll know have significant memory problems. Yeah. Now, those people, when they come in, they always take longer. Mm -hmm. But there's not enough of them for the standard practice 
to actually reorient and restructure the whole practice. Yeah. On the other hand, they might need a restructured practice to actually be able to give them enough time and focus mm-hmm. and support and how healthcare systems grapple with that sort of uneven distribution is yeah. a real challenge. What we're trying to do is trying to help a, a healthcare system think about identifying their docs who might, whether they know it or not, as they the older doc is more likely to have even older patients because yeah. patients stay with an old with their doctor for a long time. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, an older doc who may not have the resiliency and the patience to do all that stuff, all of a sudden yeah. has all of these other demands, but they don't quite know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And so how a health plan as an insurer or yeah. a healthcare system helps those docs and organizes care to help things out is going to be very important. We don't have any absolute answers to that yet, but we're working on it. We're trying. So that would be care delivery, basically. It's it's, we're talking about Um, care delivery. We haven't got any drugs. Yeah. There are no drugs that actually work, work. Yeah. And the last four or five that were up to big trials did Mm -hmm. not work. Um, Yeah. And I think the most recent one that may or may not have gone through, I think there's still some debate about whether it's going to go through FDA. The effects were really, really small, if at all. Uh, So at the margin, this is going to be for a while about care, reorganizing care and restructuring care to meet those particular needs. But the demography is also going to be really important. So I'm 72. I was born in 1949. Got it. I'm sort of at the leading edge mm-hmm. of the baby boomers. So Bill Clinton, I think, is you know okay. the early, early baby boomer. You know, mm-hmm. but they're going to start hitting 80 soon. That's right. It's you know, be- but for the next five years, yep. there's not going to be a big boom of demand for long-term care. Yeah. Because the oldest old. You know, the uh, the World War Two people, they're dying out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next bump is the Korean War types, and they're also dying out. The next, yeah. from the VA's perspective, it's the Vietnam vets. That's my age and up. That's right. And That's right. As we become increasingly in that dementia-prone episode, that's a big number of people. It's, it's going to be a huge demographic challenge, but I mean... I quote this regularly, Vince, is that um, the Kaiser Family Foundation projected that by 2050, the number of 100-year-olds still living will quadruple. And that's, I think that's what you're explaining is that, listen, this issue that you're, you're really diving into around identification of dementia, you know, the symptoms of dementia, how care delivery will deal with, um, you know, early dementia and manage it versus there's no therapeutics. Um, it's going to become more and more of a public health issue with seniors that live to a hundred times greater than they did in the past. Yeah. So that's that's fantastic, uh, you know, um, exploration. I'm gonna. 
see if we can like wrap this up with, um, I'd love a little bit of your prognostication around how like senior care innovation, and I'm, I'm talking about, you know, in your area of expertise around the post-acute area, there's been talk of tailwinds that would help us as a care delivery or even health plans do more for seniors in their homes, address more um, of the non-medical needs of seniors. Um, do you think the pandemic is going to give us more tailwinds uh, as these things move forward? Um, and maybe give us a little sense of what you see in the future. So I, I think that, um, so the proportion of people leaving hospital going to post-acute care was already beginning to drop yeah. before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The length of stay of those people in the post-acute care setting was dropping even faster, both fee-for-service Medicare and particularly Medicare Advantage. Uh, so the number of nursing homes uh, that were um, beginning to lose money, revenue, yeah. because of the uh, withdrawal of that Medicare funding, fewer days and you get paid per day, um, that would be, uh, so that was going on even before the pandemic. Then the pandemic occurred and for about four months, there were virtually yeah. no admissions anywhere in the country to post-acute care settings or very few, I mean, very few. Yeah. And so the occupancy took a big dive, um, which meant that at, on top of all of the nursing homes expenses going up because they had to buy PPE, they had to do testing yeah. all the time, all of those other things, the revenues fell through the roof, you know, fell through the floor. So mm -hmm. nursing homes in America are really in a very dire fiscal situation. And it doesn't look any better because whereas in 2019, let's say in the fall of 2019, Mrs. Jones has a hip fracture um, or Mrs. Jones had a, um, uh, a planned uh, total, total hip replacement or yeah. total knee replacement. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Jones that, you know, maybe lives alone mm -hmm. and might have gone to the, um, nursing home for 18 days. Yeah. Now, Mrs. Jones is going home, even though she lives alone, and there'll be a home health aide there for her and PT at home. Yeah. And the surgeon, the primary care doc will say, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. At the margin, anybody who can go home is going to go home. Yeah that's gonna carve out a huge share of what used to be in the nursing home world. That reduction in revenue is going to force many nursing homes to close. Uh, there will be either bankruptcies or realignments of major, major sources. Because um, mm -hmm. after a while you cannot survive at an 80% occupancy. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really important point about, you know, the challenges of the providers, the nursing home providers, both before the pandemic and in the pandemic. And now I think like, um, and you, I'd love your opinion on this, but in the past there were, there was um, 
seniors, like if my grandfather needed to go to a nursing home, I'd be asking a question as a family, does he really need to go there? Or could we take him home and do this? Right, right. And most of the time was like, no, go and you know get your rehab in the in the nursing home. Now I think there's even more like, I don't want to go there. I yep. prefer to go home with my family. So your consumer demand is is shifting even more towards what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Biden administration has at least got plans, whether it's in this uh, 1.9 trillion, you know, the COVID yeah. thing or other uh, other sources uh, to actually make major, major investments in home and community-based care, whether go. that's increasing the funding for uh, Medicare home health or pushing out money through Medicaid and the senior, you know, uh, administration on aging or community living or centers yeah. or whatever it is called, um, that that's going to be a big push to increase the capacity in places that don't have good home care uh, access to make that possible. How that's going to work in rural areas, it's going to be more complicated in rural areas, but yeah. there will be a lot more push and resources devoted to home and community-based services. To the extent that that happens, it will further shrink people's uh, preferences for nursing home, which is going to create, we'll have rever reverberations in every community in the country. Yeah. Do you anticipate though, that there would still need to be um, access and availability to facility care um, post, you know, discharge um, in nursing homes? Like, uh, the ability to go away completely is is likely remote. Yeah, I mean, again, back to the demography. Yeah. People from my generation, um, the baby boomers had a fairly a much higher divorce rate than the families before than the population before. That mm -hmm. means these blended and disconnected families may or may not be as willing to provide care in the future for you know. Will I get care 10 years from now or 15 years from now from my two kids who are spread out over the world? Or, you know, I don't know. You know, we'll see. Most um, likely. I'm sure they'll come and yeah, take right, care of yeah, that. Right. Yeah. Um, but that that's that's going to be an issue for uh for families and older people as they get older, because there are lots of complicated family arrangements yeah. that will be difficult. Um, and or there are many more people who have no one. And those yeah. people if they can't make it at home alone and you can't, they can't afford uh, the private duty nurse or aid or such and such, they're going to need to go to an institutional so, setting. Yeah. And yeah. so there will always be those nursing homes, whether they're both long stay or post acute, and we'll see how that, how they, how it breaks out in the industry. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I'll just tell you this, uh, Vince, I've, I've got four girls and one boy. And I always uh, had it as an extra insurance policy that those one girls, of four, one of those four girls will take me to the doctor and, you know, right. make sure I have what I need at home. Right. So you don't need long-term care insurance. <laughs> right, you, you, exactly. you pay for long-term care insurance by having those girls. Right, right. <laughs> well, this has been great. Um, uh, thank you so much for taking my pleasure to uh, you know, discuss this. I'll just say this, uh, I think your research um, is just, uh, it's just amazing that you're using big data, um, doing national uh, studies and working with partners like CBS and others 
to really answer some of these critical questions. And congratulations, Vince, on that. Yeah, thank you. All right, Jake. It was a pleasure. Take care. Yep. Thanks Bye -bye. a lot.